African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, good morning for a new week of African Dialogue. Right here on Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa and the voice of the African Renaissance. I'm Benjamin Mushatam. I'll be with you for the next hour. And you're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. If you're listening to us on DSTV, we're on Channel 902 online. You can listen to us on www.channelafrica.co.za. Well, today we're looking at a big occasion taking place today. We're looking at the trial of Hissène Habri who is the former president of Chad. A court in Senegal is scheduled to deliver a verdict today in the trial of the former Chadian dictator, Hissène Habri. So we'll look at that and really analyze what is going to come out and see what does this mean for actually justice on the African continent, especially when it comes to our presidential statesmen. So, hey, we're going to be looking at that later on. But, hey, let's get our news quickly. Top stories this hour, South Africa's presidency says President Jacob Zuma is weighing up a preliminary report he received from Defence Minister Nosiviwe Mapisa Ngakula amid ongoing media reports she smuggled a foreign national into South Africa. Two Tunisian civilians have been killed and one other injured by a landmine planted by jihadist groups in a mountainous region near the Algerian border. And finally, a military court in Egypt has sentenced eight supporters of ousted President Mohamed Morsi to death on terrorism charges. Good morning, I'm Jolani Tulo. South Africa's presidency says President Jacob Zuma is weighing up a preliminary report he received from Defence Minister Nosivuwa Pisangakula amid ongoing media reports she smuggled a foreign national into South Africa. It's alleged that Mapisangakula had flown from Waterkloof Air Force Base to, de- to the Democratic Republic of Congo to collect the young woman. The woman was reportedly arrested for falsifying travel documents that the minister's sister, who had worked in the Burundian embassy at the time, had arranged for her. President Spokesperson Bongani Ngulunga. When the story broke out last week, the president received a preliminary report from the Minister of Defense and Military Veterans. So he is considering that report. The president is looking at the report. He may look for other information we do not know yet. South Africa's opposition, the Democratic Alliance, says it will go ahead with its plans to lodge a complaint with the Independent Communications Authority, CASA, stating that the SABC has allegedly refused to air its election advertisement. The DA says the SABC had informed the party that it had no available slots for political ads. DA leader Musi Maimani says the SABC's reasons for refusing to air its adverts do not hold water. I'm accusing the SABC of blocking our television advertising now. We want to put an advert on television for the viewers tonight. The SABC is saying, no, they can't because they don't have slots. And I'm saying that the elections have been gazetted. Those slots were purchased. What is this political maneuvering? This is not 
a state broadcaster or the ANC broadcaster. It is a public broadcaster. Therefore, we are entitled to air the adverts, and therefore they must be flighted today. Meanwhile, SABC spokesperson Kaiser Khanyakho says the DA was informed about the processes that must be followed in terms of election advertising. We know that when elections come, we're always going to be accused of one thing or the other. They have approached us to say they want to get advertising, and we said to them that once we receive the list from the the CASA and and the IEC, which has always been the norm for all registered political parties, we will be able to do that. We're saying that to the DA. There are certain things that need to be done on the advert. Please do this. We want them to pay us the money. There is no reason why we would not want to do the advert. Two Tunisian civilians have been killed and one other injured by a landmine planted by jihadist groups in a mountainous region near the Algerian border. Security forces are engaged in a crackdown on Islamic State militants after they carried out four major attacks in the last year. A small group of al-Qaeda-linked a small group of al-Qaeda is also fighting troops along the Algerian border. Dozens were killed in militant assaults on a Tunis museum and a beach resort last year, crippling Tunisia's vital tourism industry. Another attack hit a town near the border with Libya where 50 militants were killed by the army. And finally, a military court in Egypt has sentenced eight supporters of ousted President Mohamed Morsi to death on terrorism charges. The court also sentenced another 12 members of the Muslim Brotherhood movement, which Morsi was affiliated to life in prison. Six others also received 15-year jail sentences. Two of the defendants were acquitted and two others were convicted in absentia. The defendants were accused of membership in an illegal group and planning to carry out attacks on military and police personnel. The verdicts can still be appealed. Morsi was elected as the country's president in 2012 but was ousted only a year later in a military coup led by the then army chief and current president Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Recapping the top stories this hour, South Africa's presidency says President Jacob Zuma is weighing up a preliminary report he received from Defence Minister Nosi Vuema Pisangakula amid ongoing media reports she smuggled a foreign national into South Africa. Two Tunisian civilians have been killed and one other injured by a landmine planted by jihadist groups in a mountainous region near the Algerian border. And finally, a military court in Egypt has sentenced eight supporters of ousted President Mohamed Morsi to death on terrorism charges. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Well, as I mentioned, when we started the program today, we look at the trial of Hussein Habri, the former president of Chad. We know that Habri was in power from June 1982 to December 1990, and he stands accused, among other things, of committing numerous crimes against humanity and war crimes against his political opponents. The trial of the former dictator of Chad, Hussein Habri, starts this morning in the extraordinary uh, African chambers of the Court of Senegal. The trial is historic for for many reasons, it will be the first of which the court of one state prosecutes the former ruler of another for alleged human rights crimes. But before we start this conversation, uh, let's start with a brief interview done by my colleague Khunza Muyahi with the media director of the Human Rights Watch, Andrew Strucklein. He started by asking him to give a brief historical background on this case and who Hussein Habri is. Well, sure. So, Hussein Habri was the dictator of Chad from 1982 to 1990, uh, a terrible time for the country in which 
uh, incredible atrocities took place. Uh, he's on trial here in Senegal now for uh, torture, war crimes, crimes against humanity. Um, these are some of the most serious crimes uh, that could possibly uh, be, tra- be tried against one man. Uh, and for uh, a head of state to actually uh, be facing these crimes is incredibly rare, uh, and it's a very good opportunity to see international justice done. The question is, he's the president of Chad. Why is he appearing in Senegal? Well, essentially, I mean, it's a, lo- it's a very long story, but to, to make a long story short, essentially, Senegal is where Hissam Habre decided to go to live in you know, glorious, luxurious exile uh, after he was uh, ousted from power uh, 25, 26 years ago. Um, so he came here uh, with much of his wealth, and uh, that's sort of why, uh, eventually, uh, he's being tried in a, in a special Senegalese court. And what has been the role of your organization in this case? Well, really, this, is, this case is all about the victims. I mean, the victims started this uh, trying to bring uh, Hissam Habre and others to justice for their crimes 25, 26 years ago. They started a, a long campaign. Nobody believed that they could uh, you know, get justice in this case. Uh, and you know, after all of these decades and through many trials and legal battles, they finally got him into a courtroom and they finally you know, are coming to this day where they're going to get a verdict and hopefully see justice. The role of Human Rights Watch was really to, to report and support uh, them and their fight for justice and to help them uh, find some of the legal support they needed. And also, you know, we have done reports uh, on the, the atrocities that took place. We found some of the documents um, in, uh, in government offices and in the offices of the security forces, uh, the security secret service. Uh, and some of those documents were later uh, examined by the investigators. Um, but our role is sort of a supporting role, I would say. What are you expecting from this case? Well, we're really hoping that the, the victims will finally see justice done, that, the, that, that Hissan Harper will finally uh, be sentenced uh, or, or convicted and sentenced uh, for his crimes. I mean, as I said before, these are some of the most serious crimes that, that, can possibly, that one can possibly be on trial for. Um, you know, this is cases of torture. Uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes. You know, there are cases of, of, of horrific uh, sexual crimes like rape and so on. Um, so we're hoping that you know, justice, uh, some justice is finally done here in this case. Well, that is the voice of Andrew Strokling, who is the media director of the Human Rights Watch, speaking to my colleague Huntsamuya Hide. We also know, according to Human Rights Watch, the most vocal NGO in the struggle to prosecute Habri, it was also the first universal jurisdiction that we're talking about here. But to help us really analyze the situation here, we're joined on the line by Dr. Marie Gibet, who is uh, from the South African Institute of International Affairs in London, and also we've got Alan 
Mungari, who is the researcher at the Institute of Security Studies here in South Africa. Thank you both for joining us on the line. Let me start this conversation with you, uh, Dr. Marie, just to look at uh, the political career of Habri before the point that he finds himself in. What do we really know about Habri? We had a little brief analysis there from uh, one of our, uh, that interview that we just heard. But can you just give us a little bit of a backdrop of his career? Sure. Um, he came to power at a, a very troubled time uh, in Chad, uh, and he came to power through a coup, uh, so just the same as, as he was ousted uh, of power. Um, and he also came to power at a time when uh, the West was very worried about uh, what was going on in Libya and, and in particular the threat that uh, Colonel Gaddafi posed. Uh, and, and that explains in many ways uh, why he was supported by the West uh, throughout his rule uh, from 1982 to 1990. Um, and, and that also explains, uh, to some extent, some of the criticisms addressed against the current trial, uh, in that, of course, this is a one man being tried, um, and there has been no mention of the, the support that the West uh, lent him throughout his rule, and, and that probably explains why he was able to stay in power for uh, for eight years mm. and why he was also able to get away with uh, the crimes uh, that were committed under his rule. Alan Gary, your thoughts here about this particular uh, verdict or this trial? We haven't heard the verdict yet, but your thoughts around the trial itself of uh, Hissen Habri? Yes, certainly. Now, I agree with, um, with, the, with the speaker, the previous speaker. Um, and just from the trial um, proceedings, there was a prosecution witness who testified, an expert witness who testified about the wars in the northern part of Chad between uh, the Chadian National Armed Forces and the transitional government in national, of national unity in that country, and also the conflict between Chad and Libya as the two main um, conflicts that, that actually caused um, uh, a lot of the gross uh, violations of human rights, and, and more importantly, that um, that Habre exploited the hostilities to justify his own repressive policies, uh, and so you know he he benefited from local support or some ethnic groups that um, supported Hissen Habre, but there were others that were completely marginalized and on the sidelines, and it's uh, those ethnic groups that were not aligned to him that uh, that became the brunt of of his repressive regime. Well, we'll come back to the backdrop of that. We need to take a break. Hey, if you're just joining us right now, we're looking at the trial of the former dictator of Chad, Hissen Habri. It's actually starting this morning at the extraordinary African chambers of the court of Senegal. It said that the verdict might come out today, but we're going to be waiting for the finality finality of that but we're going to be looking at the backdrop of this particular situation joining us on the line we've got dr marie gibbet who is uh, from the south african institute of international affairs in london and also alan gary joins us on the line the researcher at the institute of security studies in south africa we'll take a quick break it's 11:15 central african time what are your thoughts about this trial you can also give us your thoughts uh, smsing us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero or you can tweet us at african dialogue that's at african dialogue that's our twitter handle let's take a quick break we'll be back good news for listeners in america you can now listen to channel africa by phoning 605 
So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, this is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I'm Benjamin Mushatama, and you're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. If you're listening to us on DSTV, remember we're on the audio channel, channel 902 there, so you can also listen to us. Don't forget to also stream us live if you do have that facility on www.channelafrica.co.za. Today we're speaking about the trial of Hussein Habri. We know the verdict is scheduled to be today. Day, and it's scheduled to be in the court in Senegal and uh, still we're looking at our uh, really updating this but we'll see what's happening I don't think the actually verdict has come out yet so we're still awaiting that finality there but on the line we've got Dr. Marie Gilbert who is the South African Institute of International Affairs representative in London Ellen Gary also joins us from the Institute of Security Studies in South Africa. Alan, let me come to you in terms of the criticism that uh, uh, Dr. Marie highlighted highlighted earlier on there about the issue of uh, uh, the criticism of this particular case or how you can actually pin so many crimes on one man in isolating circumstances, the people around him, those who supported him during his uh, presidency. What are your thoughts around that? Mm. In in response to that, I think we'll have to look at the historical antecedents of, of this trial in 1992, the A Commission of Inquiry in Chad um, accused Hussein Abbey of committing 40,000 assassinations and torture of more than 200,000 um, Chadian nationals. So, um, unfortunately, the recommendations of that commission were not taken into um, into action. Um, but what happened, obviously, in the trial is that some of these um, concerns and challenges as to, um, you know, would would there be a risk of, of former Habre subordinates giving testimony that would implicate, um, for example, the current president uh, for being responsible for some of those atrocities as well. Um, so those are some of the challenges that that uh, the trial had to to, to contend with. Um, but uh, yeah. one one of the key challenges, though, that that we see uh, in, in the trial was at the, at the commencement of it, when Habre himself refused to cooperate uh, w- with with the court. 
Um, you know, he kept shouting that this is a masquerade, this is a farce, that the entire the entire establishment was 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 not constituted properly. And these challenges, uh, he raised them himself um, before other uh, other African courts and the Economic Community of West African States Court of Justice. Um, he he raised those issues. Um, but unfortunately, that court in West Africa did not agree with him and uh, and called for Senegal to institute proceedings through the extraordinary African chambers. Mm. Uh, Dr. Gilbert, also another thing that's been interesting is people talking about the role that the Ronald Reagan administration played during Habri's rule and should they take the blame for the torture that the victims of Habri suffered? I'm sorry, you spoke about the role of who? Uh, Ronald Reagan administration during the turn of Hissen uh, 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 Habri. Some people saying, well, they should also be blamed for some of the issues of uh, the way that he governed since they supported him in certain instances. Yeah, but one of the, the problems is that um, there is really no um, no precedent um, to uh, go about doing that, mm. um, and 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 probably also very little political will uh, to do this. I, I would just add that um, the, the, the extraordinary African Chamber did try uh, to prosecute more than Habre. Uh, they actually indicted four other persons who had uh, worked for him and and who were at the head of his political police. Uh, and that's where Chad very much drew the line and, and very clearly said, no, we're not going uh, to extradite these people. Uh, and, and interestingly, Chad organized a trial itself where um, 21 persons were, were prosecuted for some of the crimes that were committed under his rule. So, um, of course, this is the trial of Hissena Bray, and, and he's seen as the main uh, uh, person in charge, mm. uh, understandably. But, but there has been more uh, that has taken place, uh, possibly in, in, in a desire on the part of Chad to also be seen as doing something and, and be in control also of, of some of these uh, issues of, of transitional justice. Mm. Tell us a little bit, uh, Doctor, about the extraordinary African chambers of the Court of Senegal. Earlier on, my uh, uh, colleague, Hunza, was asking that expert earlier on that why is this case taking place in Senegal and, and this particular court itself? Well, it's it's very. I mean, it's a very interesting uh, uh, history. The, the initial idea was that he would be tried <laughs> by uh, the Senegalese justice itself, uh, and as as my colleague there was was saying, um, it's it's a, a judgment by uh, the Court of Justice of the Economic Community of West African States uh, that had been saved by uh, by Habre's uh, lawyers that decided that that wasn't possible and that Senegal had to create a specific institution, an extraordinary institution, uh, to try her prey. Uh, and so that, that explains a further delay uh, in bringing him to justice. But effectively, what's happened is that the African Union and Senegal worked together 
to bring about this model of what is generally called hybrid uh, justice, where you have a mixture of Senegalese uh, elements and, and notably uh, judges uh, and of, of an international uh, uh, input uh, through sciences in particular. So uh, a lot of the money uh, that uh, helped uh, uh, create these uh, courts is, is international, comes from Chad and the European Union in particular, uh, but also there are some African Union judges. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting model. It's one that was seen uh, in other places like Sierra Leone or Cambodia. Um, and it, it certainly seems to have created a, a sort of very pan-African uh, sense of, of, of belonging as well. Um, it's not just the Senegalese Court of Justice. Mm. Your thoughts are around this court, Ellen. Do you think it was a breakthrough in terms of how we deal with justice on the continent? Most certainly. I, I agree that um, the, Istaf, the um, Extraordinary African Chambers is an exception in the family of, of the war crime tribunals that we've seen. Mm. Um, the Extraordinary Courts in the uh, Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia and the Courts of the Tribunal being some examples. But this is a fundamentally national tribunal. And, uh, and as my colleague has mentioned there, that it's a product of a treaty between Senegal and the African Union. Um, the key is that it's the first inter-African tribunal, and it's got an, an international character, so it has some judges and some staff members who are from other African countries, um, and, but most of them are, are Senegalese, but the EAC is seen as the first successful attempt at uh, universal jurisdiction in Africa. Isenha is not is not Senegalese, the court is in Senegal, mm. it's exercising jurisdiction over victims who are not Senegalese, but um, Chadian, Chadian victims, and so it, it's a really classical example of, um, of of universal jurisdiction in operation in the continent. Mm. Staying with you in terms of looking at this court, and I'm interested in looking at the, the dynamics, and we're going to let it go, and we're going to come back to some of the what happened in terms of the legal proceedings themselves, Ellen. But I'm comparing this court to the ICC, which has received a lot of criticisms from the African community itself. Uh, what jurisdictions do these two courts play, and is it a bit confusing for how we look at justice to have these two different courts almost uh, uh, doing different kind of the same job but in different um, avenues? Yeah. So maybe the first thing that we could say is um, is, is the temporal jurisdiction of the courts. The okay, ICC sure. is a permanent court, okay. whereas the extraordinary African chambers in the courts of Senegal is a it's a temporary court. It's just for this trial, for the hybrid trial. So that's the one big distinction. And then obviously the jurisdiction of uh, the extra- extraordinary African chambers is limited to prosecute the most responsible for crimes and grave violations in Chad that occurred during Hissène Habré's regime. Mm. As my colleague had mentioned, there were other indirectees as well, um, but unfortunately they did not appear before um, the EAC. So the, the, the personal jurisdiction of, of the EAC is limited to Hissène Habré and the five others that were indicted uh, with him, whereas the ICC um, has jurisdiction over um, persons that, that, that reside in, 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 the, in the jurisdiction of states that have signed um, the, the Rome Statute that created that court, as well as um, in the territories of countries that have been referred to um, to, to, the, to the ICC, um, for example, the situation in Darfur and in Libya, which is Security Council referrals. 
So those are, those are some jurisdictional um, differences between these two courts. We expect that um, after this Habre verdict is issued um, from today, then uh, and the sentencing issues that happen and reparations, that court will fold up. Um, but uh, uh, and, and we'll not hear any more about about the EAC. Mm. Well, we'll come back to the legal proceedings because I'm very interested to see how it was actually handled, especially from the witnesses' side. And I know that uh, from on the t- 2006, sometime the European Parliament also demanded that Senegal turn over Habri to Belgium to be tried, and Senegal did not comply with that. So it's been a long process, and then we'll go back to the legal proceedings. What are your thoughts if you're listening to us? Uh, maybe you're listening to us online or on DSTV. Give us your thoughts about this particular trial give us your thoughts at info at channelafrica.org that's our email address info at channelafrica.org or you can tweet us at african dialogue we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with our two guests If you have friends and family in the United States of America who enjoy staying in touch with news from home, tell them they can call 605-475-1711 and listen to Channel Africa from any mobile phone. The best part is there is no extra cost for the call when it originates from the U.S. So tell your friends and family in the U.S. to listen to Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance. Get to know Channel Africa and all the people who bring news, views and great African entertainment. Bonjour à tous, merci encore une fois d'être sur Channel Africa. Channel Africa. You can now catch Channel Africa on DSTV Audio Bouquet, Channel 902. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is African Dialogue. You with me, Benjamin Mushatama. Today we're looking at the Hissen Habri uh, verdict, which is coming out today. Of course, we can't give you details on the verdict itself since we still are uh, to learn about the verdict itself. But we're looking at the trial and looking at where it started and looking at the backdrop of Hissen Habri himself and just an- analyzing what happened in terms of this particular case. Let me start this part with you, Dr. Marie Gilbert, in terms of looking at the legal proceedings themselves. Um, how did they actually go about, uh, were they transparent enough, and also how did they deal with also the witnesses? Um, it's very interesting uh, that um, in this particular case, the, um, the victims were able to be plaintiffs, and, and that gave them a very um, active role um, in the trial because they were able in particular to select uh, the witnesses, and 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 they made a real effort at at producing a very representative uh, panel of witnesses, uh, so people from different ethnic groups, men and women. Um, they also brought in uh, experts, forensic experts from uh, Argentine. So it, it's really it, it was a, a very high quality uh, trial in many ways, um, and in particular because they had thought through uh, their strategy to to a very very uh, uh, high uh, level, um, and and I think a lot of things uh, came out 
uh, a lot of things that were already known, uh, but also very interestingly new facts. Uh, and I think for me that the main uh, new fact that came out was the, the extent to which sexual violence and sexual abuses had been used as a strategy uh, under her brain. Um, so it, it has been a very, very interesting uh, trial, also because a lot of documents uh, had been uh, collected. Andrew Schroedine from Human Rights Watch uh, it talked about that, uh, and I think that also made for a very, very high-quality trial um, in, in many ways. Alan, your thoughts about the proceedings? Most definitely. I think the fact that uh, the victims of, of Hussein Habri's regime uh, were able to be represented in court. They were present in that court. Um, as Andrew at Human Rights Watch had mentioned, it's been 26 years of, of, of a legal battle. Um, and for them to, to be in court, and this is very interesting for me that uh, the victims of, who were witnesses sat um, you know, within a meter of, of Hissem Habre. And it was account after account of them uh, um, telling the, the stories of the torture, the stories of the things that they had to do, um, uh, as, as, as uh, my colleague Marie has just mentioned there, that there was this evidence or, or testimony that was adduced um, concerning sexual violence, rape. Unfortunately, um, the charges against Hissam Habre did not comprise um, sexual crimes, and, and therefore we don't expect a verdict. Um, around this, and, and in fact, um, it's so unfortunate that the victims that that were in court and um, and, and spoke about uh, the, the sexual violence against them were were reduced to 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 some terrible names, and the defense would call some of them nymphomaniac prostitutes. Unfortunately, mm. but it's this kind of um, opportunity that the victims had to 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 be a part of the proceedings not just to share their views and concerns, but to actually place on the record evidence concerning his and her, um, her, her brave regimes, torture crimes against humanity and war crimes. Mm. And also looking at it, it, it was kind of, when it started beginning, you heard kind of, you know, uh, we have to be careful sometimes when we deal with these kind of topics because we're in Africa, so sometimes there's a lot of stereotyping towards Africa and people always wonder why why is this happening to an African leader or dictator itself? Why is this didn't happen with the George W. Bush, with what happened with Iraq and Afghanistan and all those things? But the idea that this was a Western agenda and it was actually propelled by the West to see this thing actually taking place. Your thoughts around those kind of myths, Alan? Hmm. I think what we should concentrate on is the crimes that are committed in the continent. Hmm. Yes, um, perhaps there is some imbalance in the international criminal justice system as to um, the, the role that certain states have, but we cannot reduce the fact that these crimes are happening in the African continent. And in this particular case, that Hissène Habré's regime committed the crimes that um, that, that, that quite clearly came out as, as the victim witnesses spoke in court. And so we, we must address these crimes. Um, yes, it's a, it's a, I think it is a different battle altogether when we talk about the imbalance in the international criminal justice system, but it does not negate the fact that um, we need accountability for the crimes that are happening in the African continent. And, and this was a classical example of trying to deal with the past 
these were events that happened between 1982 and 1990. We're not talking about um, the, any any recent um, um, conflict or even the most recent concerns that African states perhaps have put uh, uh, with respect to the International Criminal Court. Mm-hmm. These were things that happened in the 80s, in the 90s, and, um, and, and is really being spearheaded by an African country in support uh, of the Af- by the African Union. Dr. Marie-Kilbert, your thoughts there? Yes, I, I completely agree, and I, I think um, I, I think Africa needs to take pride in having achieved this. Um, so I think rather than looking at which trials are not taking place, and of course it is very problematic that Western leaders seem to be completely out of touch and, and out of uh, reach for uh, international justice, but, but I think we, we do need to put that issue aside and, and, and really uh, congratulate Senegal and, and the African Union on, on this achievement and, and look at ways forward for uh, other trials of this type to, to, to happen. One thing that, that needs to be noted is that in this case, the ICC could not have uh, taken a grasp of, of this case because the ICC only has jurisdiction for crimes that were committed after 2002 when it was created. Um, so there really needed to be there a, a very specific effort uh, from Africa to uh, to actually make this trial against Habre happen. Um, and it's a huge achievement that it, it has taken place. And also, talking about the achievement of this particular case, what does it cement for justice on the African continent? Because I think that's very interesting. Can it be used as a model of how to actually pursue justice, especially for the elite and also political uh, figures on the African continent? Can this be used as some form of model in terms of also cementing that independence of our own judiciary decisions, Alan? Yes, most certainly. I agree, Benjamin. I think that um, what this this court, the, the existence of this system, what it has done is that it has supported the strengthening of national criminal justice systems to address international crimes. So um, as a result, one spectacular indirect result of, of, of this um, is, uh, his Senhabri trial is that in Jamena, in Chad itself, there have been trials of um of high high level personnel who who worked in in the Hussein Habre government, 24 in 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 particular, and, and and they were also found responsible for for the deaths of of, of the number of people that were killed, 40,000 Chadians during the eight years of 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 uh, of, of Hussein Habre's regime. There are still investigations that are going on, um, um, but but key to to the entire retribution and restorative aspect of justice is that um, that the court in Jamena has also been able to order reparations for the victims, and and that's a big question that that we must discuss as well with respect to the Hussein Abre trial. Um, but back to to the Chadian process. Um, the fact that reparations to the victims in Chad is possible um, now as a result of, of all that has happened in the extraordinary African chambers and the statute and what it provides is something that we must celebrate. Um, one of the orders that the court in, in Jamena has also issued is a construction of a memorial. And, and also um, Marie had mentioned that, and Andrew as well had mentioned, a number of documents had been found in the premises of uh, the former Secret Service of, 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 of the Chadian government. And so the transformation of that building into a museum 
all these lands to a post-conflict state trying to reconstruct, trying to ensure that um, it is adequately dealing with the past. It's not enough just to have retribution. It's mm-hmm. important to have restoration. Mm. And um, so that's that's something else that we're looking forward to in, in the Hussein Habri trial. The big question will be whether there will be reparations for victims and adequate reparations in as much as the statute that created that court, the Extra, uh, Extraordinary African Court, guarantees reparations for the victims um, in the form of restitution, compensation and rehabilitation. We, we still do not have a procedure um, for uh, how their reparations will be issued or even the establishment of a victim fund um, to, to, to operationalize the reparations. Mm. With that being said, I, I find it interesting that you highlight those issues that are very much um, uh, victim-centric. I could use that phrase if I can, if it makes sense, Dr. Marie Gilbert. And I think sometimes this this case showed that kind of that you can actually hear the voice of the voiceless in, in Africa. Actually, those who have been actually experienced injustices on the continent, their voices can be actually un- unpacked and unveiled in, a, in, a, in the justice system. Yes, absolutely. I, I think it, it's really one of the biggest achievements. Um, the, the other issue, of course, is, is outreach. I mean, one of the limits of the Extraordinary African Chambers is, is that the trial took place in Senegal, so mm-hmm. very far away from Chadian society. Um, and, and there's been a real effort, and again, drawing on previous experiences in other countries to to bring the trial to the Chadian population, to show videos of, of uh, extracts of, of the trial, uh, to talk about the trial uh, throughout Chad. And I, I think alongside all of the other uh, issues mentioned by my colleague, the, the, these are very, very important as well, that you know that the trial reaches uh, the Chadian population and, and makes a, a very important mark in that regard. And, and as to, you know, can this be a precedent? I, I hope so. Mm. I, I think, to my mind, one of the biggest achievements of, of the Extraordinary African Chambers is, is the creativity and the capacity to adapt to, um, you know, the, the, the issues at stake in this very particular case. And <laughs> I think there's a real uh, creativity throughout Africa uh, about about dealing with different crimes, different situations, different histories. Um, and I, I think for me this is one of the main strengths, really, of, of all these models, maybe compared to the ICC, that, that may be in some ways criticized for being sometimes a bit one-size-fits-all. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I hope this is a model that this idea of, of adapting uh, the international justice will, will stay on. And let's wrap it up with your final sentiments. Let's start with you, Ellen. I think this is um, really, as, as, as the name of the court is, extraordinary. I believe that this process has really been an extraordinary process as well for the African continent. Um, one one thing that I must say is that, uh, you know, this is not the first um, African leader to be brought before a court. Um, uh, former Liberian President Charles Taylor was brought before the special court for Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. Different kind of court, but nevertheless, there was a leader that was brought to book for the crimes that he committed in this country. So I think sometimes we must take a pause. You know, we, we constantly say that, um, that, 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 uh, that, that there should be no impunity for international crimes, regardless of the position, the official capacity that you have. But it's, it's, it's a challenge to actually get um, these African leaders um, to account for their crimes. But we have seen progress. 
Um, this court, uh, the extraordinary African chambers in the courts of Senegal, has done an extraordinary work in bringing um, Hissan Habre to account. And, and we're hoping that uh, it will be also a deterrent um, uh, for, for, for other African leaders who may be mm. in the process of, of committing this crime, mm. um, not to commit the crime, knowing very well that at one point in, 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 in the future, they will be called to account for their crimes. Uh, Dr. Marie, your final sentiments? Yeah, I agree. I, I think, again, we, we've really got to celebrate uh, this achievement. I think it's shown quite a lot of perseverance on the part of the victims, uh, and it's a, it's a great victory for them that the trial has taken place. But it's also an achievement for the, the African Union, and I think this trial qualifies, really, accounts saying that Africa has a problem with international justice. I think this shows that really it's a much more complex situation than that. Mm. The only cope we can have, of course, is that, you know, it's not just a unique case uh, and that, you know, Africa (coughs) keeps on with this uh, path and and continues to uh, show its determination to, you know, put an end to impunity and and, and a a real commitment to uh, judiciary transparency. Um, But I, I think, yeah, it's a very big achievement. Well, thank you to both of you for giving us your time. I always tell our guests that we have such a long program and uh, I really appreciate that you have busy schedules that you make time for us. Thank you, Dr. Mary Gilbert, who's from the South African Institute of International Affairs based in London. Thank you as well to Ellen Gadi, who's also at the Institute of Security Studies, but right here in South Africa. Thank you both for giving us your time. Thank Thank you very much. That's how we wrap it up. Your thoughts around this case. So we know that the trial is happened today, and I think we're not even going to have to follow it up, and I'm sure that our news team will do some follow-ups on the verdict itself. But what are your thoughts? Plus 2779-695-7930. Plus 2779-695-7930. I think we covered a lot of this particular trial. And also, what does it mean post the trial? So if you also have comments yourself, give us your thoughts. You can email us as well at info at channelafrica.org. It's 11.45 Central African time. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, let's take a quick break and then we'll just play a song. Angeli Kijo, this one is titled Black Ivory Soul before we move on to our business news.
Well, we'll come back to that song. Let's quickly move on uh, to the uh, economics news. Bisani Matebula is standing by. Good morning. Thanks, Benjamin. Sibanya Platinum, formerly known as Aquarius Mine, is uh, given striking mine workers up until today to return to work or face disciplinary action at their shafts in Krondal near Rustenburg in South Africa's northwest province. The mine is uh, dealing with its first platinum strike after members of Mine Workers Union, AMCU, downed tools at the Krondal mine on Friday. The mine obtained a court interdict, preventing the workers from continuing with the strike. AMCU President Joseph Matundra. The court ordered that the strike uh, should be uh, temporarily interdicted until the return date in August. But the point here is not about the mutual interest net, it's about the safety of the workers. The employer, in terms of basic conditions of employment, clear that any worker who performs work after 1800 hours afternoon, the, the, the employer has to provide the transport. An African mobile communications company, Vodacom, plans to shut down its uh, M-Pesa mobile money unit next month after attracting only 76,000 subscribers. But in Zimbabwe, new research suggests that the uptake of mobile money is so great it threatens the viability of traditional banks. In 2015, the majority of transactions were conducted not through the banks but on mobile money platforms. Shinga Nyoka reports. It's a simple service that was introduced to assist those living in the city to transfer small amounts of cash to their unbanked families in the rural areas. It's now the dominant way Zimbabweans transact, whether they're paying bills, buying groceries and fuel, and even paying wages. Botswana's economy will return to growth this year after contracting in 2015 as water and electricity supply stabilize. The Bank of Botswana's Kia Lebo Masalila says consumer prices in the southern African country will remain within the bank's target band of between 3 and 6 percent. Botswana's economy contracted 0.3 percent in 2015 due to a sharp fall in mining output as global demand for commodities sank and a severe drought pushed up inflation. Let's look now at your financial indicators quickly. Uh, the U.S. dollar at uh, 15.70 to the South African rand at 11. Botswana Pula and 10.30 Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.68 to the British pound and 0.89 against the euro. Commodities gold is at $1,203. Platinum $968 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil at $49.10 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. Well, Fixozo is with us. That's Figure Lingwati. Uh, he's here with our sports. First up in our sports update, it's football news. The Super Eagles of Nigeria have arrived in Luxembourg City ahead of the Tuesday's international friendly against that country's senior national team. The delegation left Rouen where they played against Mali and lost 1-0 to Mali on Friday and are now at the Alvise Park Hotel located en route d'Echtacht in Luxembourg City. 
Friday's defeat by Mali was the third loss in 11 matches for the Nigerians and the Malians have already qualified for the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations with two matches to spare. The Super Eagles interim coach Samson Siasia says there's a great spirit in camp as players and officials look forward to winning against Luxembourg. And thousands of Real Madrid fans piled into the streets of the Spanish capital and filled the club's 80,000 capacity Santiago Bernabeu Stadium on Sunday to welcome home the heroes after a historic 11th European Cup win. An open-top bus emblazoned with the word Campiones champions carried the team who showed off the trophy to fans just after sunrise on their return from beating local rivals Atletico Madrid in a penalty shootout in Milan. The squad snapped photos of the raucous crowd from a platform especially erected at Sibeles before Captain Sergio Ramos waved the large silver trophy for the cheering supporters. Ramos says to win two Champions League in three years shows that their efforts have had their reward. And in South African football, goals from Jeremy Brokey, Bradley Krobler and Michael Boxall and short Supersport were crowned 2015-2016 Nedbank Cup champions after defeating Orlando Pirates 3-2 in the final at Pidamukaba Stadium in the Limpopo province. Pirates' goals came from Lou Vuyo Memela and Clayton Daniels' own goal. United coach Stuart Baxter says credit should go to the players, especially substitute goalkeeper Buafela Pule. With all credit going to the players in terms of their character, uh, the captain especially, he was outstanding. Pula came in, <coughs> immense really, under such great pressure. And they all worked it through, they all worked. And what we, what we, what we didn't, what we, what we couldn't achieve in terms of tactical, technical, we, we achieved in physical, mental. And I think all credit to the players. They've done it. They've done it again the hard way, but they've done it in a fantastic way with their own with their own identity. And I think they can be very very proud of themselves. In rugby news, Springbok coach Alistair Kutsier says there are players who are not considered for selection to the Springbok squad because of focus on the Bledsbocket team ahead of the Rio Olympic Games. Players like Juan de Jong, Brian Habana and Cheslin Colby are amongst the players that Coutier would have considered. Just to note also that there are players not included who are injured and players who are part of the sevens, uh, the, in, in the mix of the sevens uh, going to the Olympics. Um, a Brian Abena that's not available for us in this, for the incoming series. And uh, like I said, also injury. So it's, it's really exciting. And uh, I'm looking forward to see how these players will adapt to, you know, a, a higher level than, than Super Rugby, Test Rugby, and then against the, the Saxons as well. No, no, it was a, a decision that was taken by SA Rugby long ago, like last year in the World Cup. Yeah, you know, preference went to the, the Springboks, so it was just fair uh, to make sure that we set up new power to, to bring back the gold. And finally, with golf news, Chris Wood has won the BMW PGA Championship at Wentworth for the biggest win of his career. The 28-year-old Englishman finished on nine under par for a one-stroke win over Richard Kalbeg with Masters champion Danny Willett in third. And that's the sport news this hour.
Well, remember that African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. So do join us here. Spread the word about us. Remember, you can also find us on uh, uh, Channel 902 on DSTV. That's on DSTV. And I know that's an African also um, platform as well. So you can find us there on Channel 902 on our on DSTV. Hey, give us your thoughts as well by emailing us at uh, info at channelafrica.org or you can also find us on Twitter at African Dialogue. That's our Twitter handle at African Dialogue. We want to hear from you. And thanks to those who listen to us from America. Remember, if you know someone from America, they can listen to us by calling us on 605 475 1715. What's great about it, it's at no extra costs. So that's fantastic. Hey, that's how we wrap it up. We'll be back tomorrow, same place, same time, right here on Channel Africa. Today we'll be looking, tomorrow rather, we'll be looking at uh, the kind of uh, protest culture that we are seeing in South Africa. We're going to be specifically focused on South Africa and the protests that we've been seeing in the last few months and what do they actually represent for the country, especially now that the country is moving into municipal and local elections. So we'll be looking at that tomorrow. But until next time, God bless.